This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for being here. I'm uh, Matt Barreto. I am professor of political science and Chicana and Chicano studies and the faculty uh, co-founder of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative along with Dean Segura and Sonia Diaz, our executive director. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here today to talk about these important uh, lasting legacy issues. We're now transferring into the, um, the practical application of Leo's work, and we just heard so much about his impact in the academy and, and his mentorship, and now we'll be talking about the practical application of his work. Um, I first met Leo similar to uh, Abel's story when I was a graduate student. I was a graduate student at the University of California, Irvine, uh, down in Orange County, and was working with uh, the Los Angeles County Chicano Employees Association with Alan Clayton in 1999, I think, on the uh, getting ready for the redistricting efforts in 2000. And uh, he introduced me to Leo, who was working with the LA County Chicano Employees Association. And very similar to the story Abel told, uh, I hadn't met him before. I, of course, was familiar with his work and was citing much of it in my own uh, demographic analysis. And we spent two hours, the first time I met him, two hours in Alan's office um, at the uh, LACCEA, uh, going through the data, getting advice and getting feedback. And that was just the kind of a wonderful mentor and person he was. And this was not necessarily to uh, help uh, my dissertation work, although it certainly did inform it, uh, it was uh, to work on, on some preliminary issues, getting ready for the 2000 round uh, of redistricting that I was uh, just a research assistant on a project. Uh, and so I thanked him for that, and it was wonderful for me to end up here uh, at UCLA as a professor that I could be uh, working uh, just a few years uh, with Leo. Well, let me introduce our distinguished panel as we are going to transition and talk about his influence in redistricting, how his data was used, and uh, how his ideas penetrated in to make sure that there was representation for the Latino community. is certainly something he stood for uh, in all of his work. So I'm joined today uh, by four distinguished guests who have all uh, worked directly with or have been impacted by uh, Leo Estrada's legacy. Uh, first, we have former Los Angeles County Supervisor Gloria Molina, who grew up in, uh, please round of applause. Thank you. Sounded like there was some there, so I wanted to encourage it. Thank you. Uh, grew up in the Pico Rivera era, uh, area and is the eldest of 10 children. Uh, growing up in Pico Rivera, she learned that eliminating unfair barriers is the best way to ensure opportunity. In 1982, Molina made history as the first Chicana elected to the California State Assembly. But it was in 1991 when Molina made serious headlines by becoming the first Latina ever to join the powerful Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors representing the first district. She quickly developed a reputation as a fiscal watchdog committed to good government reforms, maintenance of the county's public health care delivery system and quality of life issues, particularly uh, for the one million county residents residing in unincorporated areas who had no city uh, government to turn to. Uh, and in 2004, Molina served as vice chair of the Democratic National Committee, uh, among many other uh, recognitions and honors that she has had. Uh, thank you, uh, Supervisor Molina, for joining us, and we'll look forward to your comments. 
Uh, just to the uh, left of her is Tom Sines, the President and General Counsel of MALDEF, where he leads the Civil Rights Organization's five offices in pursuing litigation, policy, advocacy, and community education to promote civil rights of Latinos living in the United States. Uh, Sines rejoined MALDEF in August of 2009 after spending four years on the team of Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. He was on the executive team as counsel to the mayor. He previously spent 12 years at MALDEF practicing civil rights law as a staff attorney, regional counsel, and vice president of litigation. And he served as MALDEF's lead counsel in numerous cases in areas of education, employment, immigrant rights, and voting rights. Uh, Sines is a graduate from Yale College and Yale Law School, and he clerked for two federal judges before initially joining MALDEF uh, back in 1983. Uh, to, uh, please, applause, thank you. Um, next is Maria Blanco, the Executive Director of the University of California Immigrant Legal Services Center, which provides immigration-related legal services for undocumented students and their families at the nine UC campuses. Uh, Blanco serves on the Board of Directors of the Public Policy Institute of California and was a commissioner on the first ever California Citizens Redistricting Commission in 2011. A graduate of UC Berkeley School of Law, Blanco has served as the National Senior Counsel for MALDEF director for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the Bay Area and director of the Earl Warren Institute at UC Berkeley Law. Thank you, Maria, for joining us today. Uh, and uh, last but not least, at the end of the uh, lineup here, we have former Senator Richard Polanco, a native Angelino graduating from Garfield High School before going on to East LA College, uh, the University of Redlands, and Universidad de Mexico. He served in the California uh, legislature from 1986 to 2002, um, represented the 55th Assembly District in the 1980s, which then transitioned after redistricting to the 45th Assembly District and included parts of Northeast and East Los Angeles. In 1994, Polanco was elected to the California State Senate to represent the 22nd Senate District, where he served until 2002. Over the span of his time in the legislature, Polanco consistently advocated for Latino interests, including formally recognizing and granting an annual holiday in honor of the great leader Cesar Chavez. Under his tenure as chair of the Latino Legislative Caucus, he saw a notable increase in the number of Latino members in the state legislature, an issue that he continues to work on and work with today uh, as a liaison to the state legislature. Uh, thank you, Senator, for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to actually start on that end of the table with Senator Polanco. Each um, panelist is going to have five minutes opening comments. You have some very lovely students here in the front row who are going to give you your, your clock, your signs. Um, but don't worry, there's going to be plenty of time for more discussion. I'll ask a couple of questions after we hear their opening comments, uh, and then we'll open it up to uh, audience uh, question and answer. And we already have one question queued for Tom on abolishing the US Senate. <laughs> Very good. We look forward to your, your thoughts on that, Tom. Uh, but Senator Polanco, why don't you get us started? And if everyone could uh, remember, we are uh, live streaming and recording the panel, but so please speak directly into the microphone so that we can get uh, a good feed and everyone in the audience can hear as well. Thank you very much. Um, I had the honor and the privilege of first meeting Leo in the early 90s. Well, in fact, in 1990, I knew of him prior to that particular year. Uh, during the period of time that uh, I had the opportunity to engage with, uh, with Leo, I was chairman of the Latino Caucus. Uh, what I treasure probably most 
uh, my experience uh, with this um, much admired and very loved individual, uh, really an extraordinary human being, uh, was his patience and his ability to explain the importance, the implications of data. Research, analyze data. I think Arturo, you laid it out so pretty. As I sat there, um, I reflected to the interactions that we had with Leo. And I say we because as chairman of the Latino Caucus, we would invite him to our retreats every year. And uh, because of his depth of knowledge, because of the data, the empirical data, uh, we were able to, from a political perspective, and I'll speak to the political side, uh, his contribution was also on the public policy side, but I, I want to spend some time on the importance of how that information allowed uh, for this caucus to grow from the seven members to 23 uh, when I termed out of office. Uh, I think the fundamental takeaway for me uh, was the question, what do you do with all this data? Why is it important? What are the implications? What are the performance outcomes? Where do we as a community fit in the big picture? Because data is, someone said earlier, is just data unless you're able to create sustainable change from it. And so Leo looked and was committed to not only diversifying urban planning, which is deep and profound, but he was also very much experienced and valued in the political process. The following items are like a stream that really allowed for the political change in California from my perspective. In 1986, IRCA is uh, adopted, becomes law. That means five million undocumented have now the opportunity to become naturalized provided they are not a public charge. We saw that as a public policy consideration. Latino Caucus was able to leverage as a result of that data $10 million annually to begin naturalization programs up and down the state. That data was critical uh, and important. In 1990, the US Census and the reapportionment. Again, seven members in that year were about to return. Term limits, 1990. What are the implications? 80 members of the state assembly would be out of office. 80 members. It would bring termination to Willie Brown speakership. And so where, again, the question, where do we fit in this particular big picture? And as a result, we had various plans that were being brought forth, Maldives, had a plan, the legislature had a plan, the governor had a plan. All went down in defeat at the very onset. And we were wise enough as a caucus to engage Leo, who provided us with the necessary documentation and voter propensity and voter data that in 1992, a big gain of nine members uh, were elected in a very strong uh, manner that allowed for more Latina representation 
In that class, we had Grace Napolitano, Diane Martinez, Hilda Solis, Marta Scutia, Luis Caldera, Joe Baca. And then at the height of Proposition 187, the Democrats lost control of the House. In 93, 1993, Cruz gets elected in a very non-Latino district. And what Leo gave to us was the data that was necessary to make very strategic, targeted campaigns, which were in very non-traditional Latino districts. The examples that I've used in the past, Liz Figueroa, 19%, voter registration, up in the, in the Fremont area, Deborah Ortiz, uh, Sacramento area. And so that data, that information, not just on the, on the side of the political agenda, but also being able to provide us with the data necessary to do the in-service training, preparing the candidates to discuss the public policy issues. I see that my time is up, and so I will just close by saying thank you to the family that is here. We appreciate very much you all sharing this incredible human being with us. He's made a difference. His legacy continues in Sacramento to this day and across the country wherever this man was able to provide the kind of public service that he gave. Thank you. So we were asked to talk about a personal recollection we might have and also to talk about impact. And at first I thought, you know, unlike some of the previous panelists and, and many here on this panel, that I didn't have an extensive uh, personal history with Leo. Um, and then I started thinking, I do have one story to tell, but I started thinking that really in the last 15 or 20 years of my life, I've been completely impacted uh, by the work of a person who essentially democratized mapping. I mean, that's really how I look at it. He put mapping in the hands of everybody that really uh, was interested in learning it, uh, which democratized uh, the redistricting process and democratized uh, public policy. You know, and that's, so beyond some of the obvious, you know, uh, you know, legacies, I think this notion of putting that skill uh, in the hands of everybody is, is really, for me, sort of one of the major lasting impacts. I mean, when we talk about the city project or, you know, the advancement project or all the people now who do mapping in order to bring about change, that really is a legacy uh, of, of Professor Estrada. I want, so on the personal note, I, I'm on the redistricting commission and when we were in the middle of drawing the maps, um, I remember I was living in LA, I was working at the California Community Foundation and there was some, I can't remember what the occasion was, there was a dinner that had a lot of elected officials at it, a gala dinner. And every elected official had been given the word that they could not talk to any commissioner. They weren't even supposed to say hello, you know, literally. So I would see people that I knew well, you know, like, you know, Senator Lott, and I had to, like, you know, look away. And, and so we, I get to this dinner, and I'm at this, 
there's three tables, and they have to rearrange all the seating because nobody could sit with me. Literally, everybody's like, well, we can't, you can't sit, no, no, uh, no, Gil said, yo, no. <laughs> and there was um, Leo Estrada. And it's interesting, everybody talks about his smile. He smiled, and he patted the seat next to him, and that's who, was, who I sat next to. Now, of course, this was the person that I really shouldn't be talking to. <laughs> 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 I thought it was hilarious that that was the person that I was allowed to sit by. We both had so much to say about the maps that, you know, we were drawing. And yet, neither one of us talked about it. He was, I was discreet, he was discreet, he was lovely. And I always remember that, but he was like, no, you can sit here. Um, about the impact and perfect flow, because what I think about is that the the... All the, you know, yes, we talk about the impact of 187, the demographics of California, and that how, how that led to a large number of Latinos. But again, the, the redistricting that happened couldn't have happened without the training that we all got at Maldef and everywhere else. What did that redistricting lead to besides elected officials that were Latinos? It really has meant the change of not just politics, but of public policy in California, completely. If you were in California 40 years ago and you were in California today, you and you landed after 40 years, you would not recognize this state. We had, for the first time, elected officials who came from working class backgrounds, from urban and rural backgrounds, who, put, who were interested in access to health, who were interested in the issues of low-wage workers, who were interested in issues of the rights of immigrants. That was because of who got elected to Sacramento. Complete change. When you, I was growing up in California and San Diego, it was infrastructure, it was military. Those were the issues that the legislature uh, moved in California. And again, the reason that those maps were drawn, it's not an exaggeration to say that well, I have to say two people. I have to mention Joaquin Avila and Leo Estrada. We were so fortunate in my cohort of uh, civil rights lawyers to have those two people in our midst. Uh, without Leo and without Joaquin, California would not be the state that it is, not just for Latinos, but for all Californians in terms of the progressive politics of California. So... That is my personal, um, and he hated the redistricting commission, I have to say. He really didn't like it. He thought it was undemocratic, we were not accountable, um, and yet he was always gracious with me. To my mind, Leo Estrada was the consummate, which is to say the perfect courtroom expert. And I don't say that lightly. In the area of voting rights, we have expert witnesses from both sides in all kinds of disciplines, from demographers to sociologists to historians to political scientists. And there is no one better, was no one better than Leo. And I will explain why. Broadly speaking, there are three kinds of courtroom experts. There's the bad experts. Most of those are concentrated on the other side. But these are the ones who have an agenda 
that's not based on research or facts, and everything that they testify to shapes the facts and the research in a wrong way to fit a predetermined outcome. Those are the worst experts. Then you have the ones in the middle. And these are the academics who seem to believe in complete objectivity, and they're all about just the facts. And they don't have a sense of where the facts should lead as a matter of public policy. They don't have a sense of where our society should be moving as a matter of public policy. But they will give you just the facts. And then there's the top tier of experts. And Leo was the best of these. And they are the ones who have a clear sense in their minds of where our public policy needs to go. They see the path to get there. But they present their testimony always in the form of the research and the facts without necessarily betraying where they think we need to get. But they know that the research and facts support where they need to get. And that's why in my mind on a day-to-day -day basis in his courtroom expert work, Leo was the perfect expert. But it's that broader vision of knowing where we should be and should be moving that is, in my mind, his greatest legacy in voting rights. From today's vantage point, perhaps despite or because of the great challenges, it's easy to forget the day-to-day -day struggles to get where we are. And for the Latino community, that starts with remembering that we were not a part of the original Voting Rights Act in 1965. That it took hard, hard work 10 years later to extend the protections of Section 2 to the Latino community. And we were opposed in doing that by our usual allies in the civil rights establishment and in the African-American community. And that's important to remember because it points out the work that had to go on after that. It means that judges, policymakers, everyone saw voting rights in a framework built around the African-American community. And encouraging them and showing them to way, the way to ensure that the Latino community could be protected as well, despite significant differences, many of them demographic. Our population is younger in comparison to the African-American population, meaning more folks below voting age. We obviously have citizenship issues that don't arise in the African-American community with significant numbers who are not yet able to vote and many who are undocumented. And of course, in our community, we have a deeper issue of turnout and participation than in the African-American community. So it's no accident that Leo played such a role in helping to ensure that these demographic differences that had to be shoehorned into folks' mental framework built around another community worked out in a way that served the Latino community. Because if you remember this, it could have worked out dramatically differently in a way that would have used each of those demographic differences more severely against us and prevented us from accessing the protections that our predecessors fought so hard to obtain in the mid-1970s after we were originally left out in 1965. So to my mind, having Leo Estrada, the demographic expert that he was, but with a vision for where we needed to go, was so essential to our collectively navigating that task 
of making a framework change for our community in a productive way. Maldiff is in the midst of commemorating our 50th anniversary. And I can say in that commemoration, we've done a lot of reflection on our history. And given what I've just described, I can say in full confidence to Elise that Leo is among a small handful of non-lawyers whose impact on Maldef's development as a legal organization is as profound as it is. Maldef would not be what it is today without the work of Leo Strala. I have a mic. Good afternoon. Uh, let me just reflect on a personal level about Leo Estrada. As we all knew him, he was a very kind man, a very personable man, uh, amazingly talented. He was very soft-spoken when you, when you had an opportunity to dialogue with him. And of course, but he, was a, he spoke very powerfully. To me, he was a giant and a giant slayer at the same time. He left an imprint so huge in our community that it has been, we've been taking leaps forward ever since because of the work that he did. Vilma Martinez, I spoke to her the other day, shared with me that she and Leo served on the Census Advisory Committee decades ago, I guess in the early 70s or before that, and she was telling me that because of his work and her work, that his colleagues, they were able to place the Spanish origin uh, question on, on the short form for the first time. For many of us take this for granted, but it was quite a milestone at that time, and many of you who are academicians and demographers and certainly students recognize and understand how significantly important a step that was, and it was a first step. Um, well, I, was, I have been or have been on, on the Los Angeles uh, County Board of Supervisors. I served there for over 23 years, and I represented the first district that was created after the lawsuit that was so significant and so important. And because I lived it, I sometimes think that all of you know about it because it was so important and so significant for our community. But Garza versus Los Angeles County is a very, very important piece, a lawsuit that was filed by Maldef uh, that unfortunately were, what, decades of work of raising money, right, <laughs> through all of those years. And, and the reality had a huge impact. Um, and it was the, all stemmed from the Board of Supervisors um, creating a, a reapportionment plan in 1981 that basically excluded us. It diffused our population. It placed a little bit of each of us in, in one of the five districts. And of course, those five members wanted to make sure that they maintained their power. And so they intentionally discriminated against us. They filed the lawsuit. And again, while I, Tom and, and Maria could probably better tell you all the legal aspects of it, I can only share what Antonia Hernandez shared with me. Leo was an amazing, part of that effort, as, as Tom has mentioned. Very significant in his testimony. And it was a labor of love and passion for him. He worked tirelessly, late into the night, crunching those numbers, as they say. Um, but it all was, it was an amazing amount of passion. It was his talent, his ability, and he did all of this with no pay whatsoever. Maldef just didn't have the money to pay him at that time. 
he was an amazing talent to every single one of us. So that's why I say he is a giant that moved our community forward as far as political empowerment and community empowerment. I ran with 11 other candidates and was elected in 1991 to the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors as the first Latina Latino on that board. And uh, it was amazing that in all of those years with the numbers that we represented at that time in 1981, well over 30% of the county population that we did not have a seat at the table. But it was that lawsuit that finally got us into um, the door and in the room. And it gave me the opportunity to focus on the priorities and the issues of the Latino community in the first district, which I did with my own passion and certainly a budget of almost 20 to $25 million while I was there, getting up focused on the issues that are important to our community. So it was very significant impact that it had in the work that he did way back. But one of the most, I don't know, special moments uh, was a little after I was elected. I was called into a closed session and we had to make a decision about how we were going to pay out. The Los Angeles County had already paid millions upon millions of dollars fighting this lawsuit. Then they had lost and so now I had been elected and I was in the room and now they had to make a determination of paying Maldef's legal bill. And so it was amazing for me to witness the discomfort of the four white men looking at me. <laughs> And, and their total discomfort, not because they had to pay the bill, but because I was in the room. And I say I was in the room with Leo, El Profe, with Tom, with Arturo, with Vilma, with Antonia, and with all of us. We were now in the room. And that is significant and important. And I think a legacy to Leo will be that we bring around the right number of Board of Supervisors. We need more representation on that county board. The resources today are well over $33 billion, and that means access to healthcare, access to every level, if you can think of it, how we deal with the criminal justice system, every aspect. It's important. So hopefully what we will do is resolve ourselves to really give tribute to Leo by continuing to carry out that work and hopefully the same way, so eventually we're going to see more than one Latino Latina on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, thank you all for those uh, opening comments. Those were great reflections on your experiences with uh, Leo, but also the impact of his work and how it has uh, impacted each of not only your own lives, but all of us here in California in terms of his quest for representation. I'm gonna throw out a quick follow-up question uh, for everyone to uh, reflect on and expand a little bit. And then uh, after we do that, uh, we'll take some questions from the audience. So if you have uh, additional questions, not only about uh, their own experiences working uh, with uh, Leo Estrada, but just in general about the work that they continue to do, uh, please collect those questions and, and we'll save some time at the end to, to hear from the audience. Uh, Senator Polanco, you were in the state legislature overseeing or involved in some of the redistricting sessions before uh, Maria Blanco and the independent commission uh, were involved. How important was it for you to bring in a Latino demographic expert into the mix as opposed to the traditional white non-Hispanic experts that had been dominating in this sort of consulting space? 
how did you make that decision? How did he become someone that you consulted with? And, and what was the impact of seeing, as uh, Supervisor Molina just said, of seeing uh, someone with his credentials and his expertise as a uh, ex expert consultant to the state legislature? Very, very critical to have had the empirical data, the research, the whole notion and the concept of influence seats. I first heard from Leo. Hmm. And that made a hell of a difference as to where we would go and campaign, recruit, campaign, and engage qualified candidates from the community. And so without that, I, I would not have been able probably to uh, identify those, not probably, I would not, we would not, and we would be then having to accept that of what had been traditional. The plans that were made uh, historically, the history of reapportionment and the drawing of the lines, starting with Phil Burton, uh, way back, the fact that in, in California, those lines are to be drawn by the legislature in that point in time. And so we would not, as a community, have advanced, not just Latinos, I, I would say the African-American community, and com people, of people of color would not have the kind of presence today that exists in California legislature, but for the work that Leo did and provided us. Those were very important strategic decision-making points that turned, I believe, the profile of what we have today in California. Thank you for that, and I think that's a, a critical uh, thing that we continue to look at in terms of diversity, is not just diversity for diversity's sake, but because people are bringing different perspectives and different ideas and the whole concept of influence seats, that it didn't have to be super majority seats uh, but that there were other areas where Latinos could have an influence and eventually get elected was certainly critical. Um, Maria, I wondered if you could speak to some of the ways that the commission in 2011, uh, following up on this, was able to push the envelope a little bit to push for more Latino uh, representation in both influence seats and, and majority seats because of the contributions that Leo had made to the demographic space. Uh, we certainly know coming out of the 2011 commission, um, it led to both in the state legislature and the Congress so many more opportunities for Latinos to run for some of these contested seats. Uh, certainly that must have been some demographic discussions that were influenced by his uh, work. So, so a couple of things. One, a personal one. We had on the commission uh, Vince Baraba the former census director. And I was, in preparation for today, I was looking at the fact that Leo wrote a letter of recommendation for Vince to sit on the commission. So I thought that was kind of interesting. After not getting the position of census director, he then turn, uh, turns around and recommends Vince for the commission. So, you know. Um, but more importantly, the criteria that we had to, to follow because of the constitutional amendment, you know, that gave the commission the power to redistrict. After population equality, the second criteria was um, that was we had to follow the Voting Rights Act, which meant basically we had to draw section two districts where you could draw them, and obviously follow section five at that time. Um, the ability 
for a commission of lay people um, to draw Section 2 districts could not have happened. I mean, it's not an exaggeration, as I was saying, without this democratization mm-hmm. of, of mapping and of knowing how to do that. Um, so not only did we get public testimony, and yes, we had lawyers working with us, but the fact is that um, the concept of majority-minority districts was now embedded in the commission, legally embedded, mm. and also the, the commission members, many of them would never have drawn those districts if it wasn't, you know, if they didn't have to, by law, draw them. That is directly the le- legacy of, of what we've been talking about all day, right? The fact that you, that, that Calif- in California, ma- the majority-minority districts that had to be drawn were Latino districts. You know, that's where we were underrepresented, was in Latino districts. Um, the consciousness that Tom was talking about, of even the concept of a Lat- Latinos as a group that had to be covered by Section 2, you know, which has then led to, to the ability. I think we gained five congressional districts out of that redistricting. I can't, like 11 assembly, and I can't remember how many. Senate was not great, um, but I won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Certainly his, and I, and I think you would agree that, that that democratization of the data and the mapping will continue to live on in the, in the 2021 round as uh, the Latino population continues to grow. Uh, Tom, I wondered if you could expand on this point because I don't know how uh, familiar everyone is with um, just the incredible difference between the original Voting Rights Act and how majority African-American seats were drawn and when Latinos were uh, added in 1975 as a language majority in the inclusion of Texas, how a whole new way of thinking had to come at looking at demographic data because of the issues you mentioned related to age and citizenship. What sort of advancements was uh, Leo able to make and contribute to get not only, of course, the advocacy groups ready to work on these uh, demographic issues, these population issues specifically, but to be able to explain that and convince federal court judges who maybe were skeptical of the Voting Rights Act in general, but had become used to it being an issue in the African-American community. Now suddenly, um, all of these uh, previous rulings of 51% and CVAP, what did that even mean? How was he able to do that uh, so effectively? Well, I, I think it's what I described as his ability as a consummate expert. He knew where we need to get, and he had the facts and the research to back it up so he could lead you where you needed to get while not telling you uh, where you needed to get directly. And it's what you mentioned, it's the research and it's the explanation because so many judges and others were used to a framework that was built around a demographically different community facing similar obstacles and barriers to participation but manifesting in in differences. when the mid-80s comes around and the Supreme Court decides Thornburg versus Jingles and sets up the framework for Section 2 to challenge both at-large systems and to challenge redistricting maps, the law needed to develop in a way, as you suggested, that would recognize Latino voters' ability to elect. And one can imagine it going very differently in a way that would have frozen us out Mm -hmm. of having 
any ability to force the creation of majority minority districts, majority Latino districts. We had to establish that despite low participation, despite uh, lower levels of citizenship, despite lower levels in the total population of those who were of voting age, you had to get to a concept like citizen voting age population that would still allow you to establish that you can draw a majority Latino district that will function. Mm. And that was as important as drawing the district, mm -hmm. was being able to show that there were enough potential Latino, Latina voters in the district that you were proposing to actually function effectively as a district that would allow the Latino community to, to elect its candidates of choice. And all of that we take for granted now, as you've suggested, but it was not a given in the mid-70s when the law was expanded to cover Latinos. It was not a given in the mid-80s when the Supreme Court finally laid out the effects test for mandating the creation of Latino majority districts. So I think the broad effect is profound. But I also wanted to, to just pause on a, the question you asked Maria, because I will say, personally, I've lost a lot of cases. One of the cases that I lost was the Cano case, which was the challenge in California to redistricting in 2001. But I use that case as an example to all of the young law students that come to work for us as proof that we win even when we lose. Because 10 years later, we challenged three districts in the Cano case. A congressional district in the San Fernando Valley, a congressional district in San Diego, and a Senate district in South LA County. And 10 years later, when the commission got around to doing its work, it seemed to me that those were the first three districts that they drew, were the ones that we demanded should have been drawn 10 years earlier. And who was our expert in the Cano case? Leo Estrada was our expert in the Cano case. So I tell all of these aspiring civil rights lawyers, you have to get used to sometimes losing when you're doing cutting edge work and convince yourself, and here's the example, that we win even when we lose. But in the back of my mind, I know it's the demographic work that our expert did in Cano that then became undeniable when the commission got around to drawing the lines in, in 2011. That's a great uh, point and a great um, story, Tom, because it's a transition to the question I wanted to ask um, Gloria about the future of Latino representation, um, which you were speculating on at the very end of your uh, comments of how long and are we going to wait for continued increased representation specifically on the board. So the county board has historically, since 1991, had uh, one Latina uh, representative uh, representing the over 50% uh, Latino population that we have in our region. Um, what do you see moving forward, given the advancements that Leo contributed to the demographic analysis, given Tom's point about sometimes you have to wait 10 years to catch up? Are you optimistic about those breakthroughs coming to the county uh, supervisors in particular? Because this is our most um, important and powerful uh, elected body. For those who don't know, the single largest districted uh, body in the United States has more constituents and representatives uh, than any uh, congressional district, given the size of our county. Are we moving in that direction? Are you optimistic? Do you see the county moving in that direction in 2021? Will it perhaps expand and have even more than five seats for a county over 10 million? Where are we going to take those population trends that Leo was able to so effectively chart back in Garza um, now 30 years later in 2021? Well, I wish I could say that 
you know, it's up to the courts and it's up to Malta filing its lawsuit and so on, but that's not the case anymore, right? It isn't, I think that, that what it rested is realizing that it, we have been given the tools and the ability to bring about these kinds of changes, that we are going to be, have to advocate to the Board of Supervisors, they're gonna do the same thing. Uh, I was just talking to a gentleman earlier that was talking about Santa Monica, a very liberal city, but they're not gonna share, change their lines to be much more inclusive. It's all about power, and they're not going to give that up. So the power of the Board of Supervisors is amazing. The budget alone is amazing. The kinds of things they can change and bring about to a community that is, what, almost 50% Latino now? A county of 10 million people? So it is incumbent on all of us, our organizations, our networks, and everyone to understand the significance of this. And it's not gonna change because we're gonna wait till Malda files its lawsuit. We're not going to wait till the laws change somewhat or somebody's going to be. Um, I think we have to continue to kick that door open by our advocacy, by our m making sure that people know and not being just polite about it. I think we have to because the resources are so critically important. I remember, I mean, I was there before 187 and during 187, when the County Board of Supervisors thought that they could deny access to healthcare to the undocumented. And believe me, other counties were doing it. San Diego was doing it. Orange County was doing it. But I know that I would argue every single time, I dare you to do it because we will bring a lawsuit so quickly. But you have to be there at the table. You have to be part of it inside in order to make those kinds of changes. We need three seats on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, it has to happen. And the numbers are there, and we can show them every which way, but I don't think that's going to make the case anymore, right? I just think it's going to be advocacy and movement and understanding. Young people like yourselves, and of course making sure that our community is voting and everyone who can vote to recognize and understand. You're voting for three, five, ten people who don't have the luxury of becoming a citizen and becoming a voter today. So we have a duty, and I'm optimistic because I think it really can happen and it will change, but it's not going to change like it did in the past. It's going to change by creating that kind of forward movement. Thank you. Uh, Thomas, a quick follow-up, and then get your questions ready. We have about uh, 10 minutes or so left for audience yeah, questions. Yeah, I mean, of course, Supervisor Molina is absolutely correct, but I do want to say we have a tremendous opportunity this time around because we do have an independent redistricting commission for the county of Los Angeles. As long as it's being challenged by the supervisors, but as long as that prevails, it's a different set of decision makers, and hopefully we can influence them. But it also means we need all of us who are potentially eligible to apply to be on these commissions, and not just the one in LA County, but the statewide commission. I would have to say, Maldef, first of all, opposed the creation of the statewide commission, but after they did their work, I said they did a pretty good job. But I do have to say, I would then add, largely because they were fortunate to have Maria Blanco on the commission, as well as a couple of others who came through the fortune of the lottery that select the first set of commissioners and then those commissioners selecting others. But the reason I raise this is that the statewide commission is being recruited now, this year. Okay, it seems a little early even to me, but we need to get people who are qualified, who are gonna come to the table at the commission with knowledge, but fit the criteria to be applying to sit on the statewide redistricting commission this summer. They're gonna open up the applications soon. 
the state auditor, and they're gonna close those applications late in the summer probably, though there will be an effort to push them out a little further. But we gotta get the right decision makers mm. so that then the facts and research that are put forward in the spirit of Leo Estrada will have an impact on folks who understand that that set of facts and research dictate an outcome, mm. including getting the kind of representation that Supervisor Molina has talked about. Uh, that's great. Uh, thank you, Tom, for reminding us about the uh, LA County Commission in particular uh, will be a huge change uh, here for Los Angeles. Do we have any questions? We have two uh, folks circulating around. I see a question over here, uh, Julio, and then one here in the middle, uh, Gabby. And then if you have another question, just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, over here is another one, and I'll uh, call on you, and we'll bring a microphone over. Uh, go ahead. Uh, hi. This, this question is for, for Thomas Sines and Maria Blanco. I was and I just wanted to mention, I, I first learned about Leo Estrada's work when I was involved in redistricting in 1990 with the, with the Asian American Coalition. And that's actually when we first met Arturo Vargas because we were, we were new to redistricting and we wanted to learn what Maldiff and others have, have, were doing. So we would often go to Maldiff's office and, and we would meet with them. But um, Thomas Sines, you mentioned the, the Connell versus Davis uh, lawsuit in 1990 that Maldiff brought against the, the redistricting. And one of the things I think was interesting there is, is Maldiff, uh, by bringing this lawsuit, um, was working against some of their natural allies, some of the progressive Latino elected officials who supported that redistricting plan. And then, so uh, my initial question was gonna be about, well, with the 2010, and now that we have an independent commission, um, how is race handled differently? And I think Thomas and, and Maria s spoke to that. But one of the questions, another question though I had was, um, how, did, how did you deal, well, well, Thomas, in general, you mentioned the three districts in the 2010 plan that were, that were drawn differently. But in Malta's estimation, was the overall plan, uh, um, could you see the difference that an independent commission made from 2000 to 2010 overall in the state? And the second question is, for, for Maria, I was wondering, how did you deal with race in areas such as the San Gabriel Valley, where you had a very large Latino population, but also a very large Asian American population mixed together, right? How did you deal with, with race in those, in those multiracial areas? Thank you. So um, Thank you. I would say, again, largely because we got a commission that included some very knowledgeable and wise people, starting with Maria Blanco, I would say that the statewide commission did a pretty good job. People, I would tell people that I would give them a B plus, right? Just because, you know, I'm, I'm a tough grader. Um, <laughs> but certainly one thing that a commission does, it does take out some of the direct conflict of office holders deciding their own lines or the lines of positions that they may be, have ambitions to achieve in the future, no question about that. But the difficulty that I have with the commission is it's not clear that every decade we're gonna be lucky enough to get Maria Blanco sitting on the commission, okay? Uh, there's nothing that guarantees that in the process set up by the initiative, and that is my biggest concern. It, it is as likely that we could end up with a commission without people of knowledge and wisdom, and that's, a critical concern. I, I would also say, I agree again that it takes certain biases out, but I think that the framers of the statewide commission went too far. Uh, you can't take politics out of redistricting. It's impossible. 
and they tried to do that, and they set up criteria to become commissioners that rules out most knowledgeable people. Um, and that's the problem, is it then makes it just as likely we end up with a commission that doesn't have Maria Blanco's in it. And before I turn it over to that very wise commissioner, I would just say with respect to your second question, unity mapping, which I think there were strong efforts and we got two thirds of the way there in the last round of redistricting, unity mapping among the Latino, Asian American and African American communities is as critical in this state as anywhere in the country because of the demographic trends that we face, which involve two growing communities, as you know, and one that is static or, or reducing in population. And whether you're from a minority group or from the majority, it's always hard to give up power. So negotiating those demographic trends in unity mapping and then with the commission is just critical in this state. Um, let, let's see, where can I start? Um, so <clears throat> let me talk, so the San Gabriel, what we did, which was completely da data driven, but it's a little twist is we did racial polarization analysis. We, we not only had people on the commission who knew voting rights, but we had some attorneys that probably didn't know as much as some of the commissioners about voting rights. But, but what we did know, and everybody agreed, was that the only way you can draw um, you know, section two districts is you have to have racial polarization analysis. What we did that was different than what sometimes happens is, uh, you know, it's hard to, to usually that, that's done in terms of um, uh, general elections. But once in California, that's very difficult because, you know, particularly now it's pretty much all Democrats in, in many parts of the state, right? So if you're talking about, if you just look at a general election, in the same, same, you know, past general elections in the San Gabriel Valley or in anywhere in LA County, you know, you're, you're already, you know, um, you don't have the right data. So what we did was we looked at uh, primaries and we did the racial polarization analysis in the primaries. And what we discovered, uh, which some of us sort of knew at a gut level, but was borne out by the research, was that in places like um, South LA uh, or you know Long Beach, that Long Beach Southeast quarter, and in the San Gabriel Valley, in different ways in the primaries, the racial polarization was between um, the that the polarization was between African-American voters, that African-American voters in primaries did not vote for Latinos, and Latinos did not vote for African-Americans. And it, the same happened with Asian voters and Latino voters. So when we had that data, which you could only get by get, go, looking at primaries, we were able to use that racial polarization analysis to draw those districts. In the San Gabriel Valley, we had a lot of community input, but the data about that was very important combined with the fact that this was a growing Asian community. If you, if you look at that district, um, you, you see um, there was already an uh, Asian assembly member, 
but we had, I think, um, the first Senate influence district. Um, so that's, that's how we did it. We looked at you know, primary racial polarization data. This is a great conversation. Please join me in thanking the panelists for their participation today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.